You're listening to The Catalyst with Samantha Chris, where we explore the inner workings of embracing the unknown, from ordinary daily habits to extraordinary measures. Get ready, we're about to ignite change and inspire action. Welcome back, everyone. I am your host, Samantha Chris, and with me today is Michael Rubenstein. Michael has led North American and global businesses in printing and packaging, real estate, and biotech. He currently sits on several boards and is a member of the Mentoring Committee for Women in Governance. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks, Samantha. Great to be with you. Great to have you here today. When it comes to change, particularly within organizations, you believe in the necessity of creative destruction. Do you think that we need to cause change and adapt before external forces kind of throw it upon us and force us to change by default? Uh, absolutely. My, my experience has been that all companies at any time of their life cycle need to continuously reinvent themselves before they're forced to by external factors. And really, this is irrespective of whether or not they're successful companies. In fact, I would argue that this becomes more important for those companies that are doing well, lest they become uh, complacent. It's so easy to fall prey to the frog in the, in the water syndrome. You know, just to give you a, a practical example, you know, one exercise that I think companies should be doing with their teams and something that I've done with my teams in the past is, is doing basically an exercise that's called creating the business that would put our business out of business. Uh, because as we know our, you know, our competitors, as we're discussing this, are in a conference room somewhere trying to do exactly that. And you know, one of the things that I've seen is the status quo inertia is incredibly strong. So doing an, an exercise like this can be incredibly liberating. There's a concept of the pre-mortem where we start to think if things were to go wrong, what would that look like so we can plan for them before we embark on this journey of change? Is it a similar concept that we're thinking about what are the unforeseen circumstances? What can we be planning for that can ultimately hurt us down the road? Yeah, there's a couple of things. You know, when I, when I talk about the status quo inertia, uh, you know, a couple of examples, it's the force really that preoccupies a manufacturing company with filling up its equipment at all costs when the right answer may be to outsource. But, un, you know, unfortunately, when you have millions of dollars of equipment filling it, it becomes a natural reflex. You know, having said that, a competitor either moving into the space may say, hey, the right answer is to outsource. I don't have equipment. I don't have uh, th this anchor, if you will. It's also a force that prevents, let's say, a global company, and I've seen this, from shipping from its Chinese facilities because they're afraid that it will cannibalize North American or European business. Well, guess what? If you don't do it, your, your competitors will. Uh, you know, you talked about uh, pre predicting things or looking at advance. There's all sorts of techniques that are, are used. One that I was uh, taught a long time ago by a, a major consumer packaged goods company that was our customers is called failure modes effect analysis where effectively what you do is talk about all the things that possibly could go wrong and then put action plans in place in order to mitigate that. I mean, if you look at the current situation with the uh, pandemic, you know, clearly there's been winners and losers as a result of the pandemic. 
you know, part of it is obviously luck. And part of it, I would argue, is, you know, have you planned for, for a disaster like this and how it would affect your business and how you could reinvent yourself? Right. So let's dig into that a little bit, because I think when it comes to planning for change, and I've gone through a similar exercise in a few organizations that I've worked with in anticipating what could possibly go wrong and building a contingency plan accordingly. And sometimes something like a global pandemic, I mean, there's, it's, it's not necessarily, not that it's not top of mind, but when we're looking at realistically, what could likely go wrong, this isn't, I wouldn't have said something that was absolutely top priority for organizations because there are probably more things that seemed more realistic at the time as as kind of curveballs that would come their way. And so when anticipating for what could go wrong, how do you think we should differentiate what is likely to happen versus what may never happen? Because we can get caught in this trap of planning for the future that never comes and ultimately not making progress. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And, you know, obviously when you're doing that and, you know, hopefully part of a business continuity plan or, or, or a strategy uh, session, et cetera, et cetera, you know, it's really about, I think, brainstorming, you know, all the things that uh, could happen. And some of them are low incident, high impact things like a pandemic. Uh, you know, I'm involved in a company that, uh, that has uh, dams and obviously there's things like floods and in, in a business like that, you need to take a look at, you know, the worst type situation of a flood happening that happens one, once in a thousand years. I know that sounds crazy, but that's the reality of what you need to deal with. So, you know, you have to, you know, be broad in scope when you're, when you're doing this uh, brainstorming. And obviously, there are some things that are more likely to happen than others. But really, what are those disaster things that could happen that really, in, in fact, can destroy your business. Uh, so as far-fetched as it may seem, those are things as, as leaders we need to look at. Absolutely. You've been part of and have led organizations that have indeed failed because they couldn't adapt and didn't plan accordingly. Have you recognized any common themes in what they were resisting? Well, it really is, you know, I mentioned the the frog in the water syndrome, and it really is that the companies have become uh, complacent that don't realize, you know, their competitors are, are moving ahead as they're maybe stagnating. So it's really having a deliberate and conscious effort to, to reinvent yourselves. I mean, the classical S-curve that companies go through, you know, I would argue the, the length of an S-curve in the past used to be maybe 10 years. Now you have to have a series of S-curves and reinvent yourself probably every, every year in some, in some form or, or another. Uh, so it kind of looks like a, uh, a, a bunch of S-curves in, in sequence that looks like a, a piano concerto or something on, on, on paper. Uh, but you really can't get uh, complacent. And do you feel that existing business models and strategies and looking at competitor analysis and quarterly reviews are becoming outdated? Is there a new way that we can function that would allow us to prepare and plan for change better? You, you know, it's funny. I, I used uh, many years ago uh, as I was entering a new business was talking about a brave new world. And, you know, people used to talk 
about a brave new world as a singular finite event. Uh, today, the brave new worlds occur kind of seamlessly and endlessly. So I think one of the things in, in answering your question, it can't be kind of a finite thing that, you know, you have a, a strategy session once a year and then you kind of go to sleep for the rest of the year. Mm. You have to keep evolving things and changing things. Uh, I, I think things like static annual annual budgets need to be replaced by rolling forecasts, et cetera, et cetera. So you're really fluid and moving a business forward, and the same needs to happen uh, for strategy. Uh, you need to really change every day. I mean, I, you know, I think w- one of the things I used to do putting uh, in meetings is assigning different roles and, you know, someone taking uh, recording the minutes and the action plans, et, et cetera. But I also put someone in place called the devil's advocate. So that person would take a kind of a contrary view of what was happening in, in the meeting. Uh, and that kind of sometimes gives you a different view of what, uh, of what to do. Uh, because again, uh, the guys, your competitors down the road are, are, are doing exactly that. Right. I think that's a really great idea. And it's not one that I've seen implemented a whole ton of, you've got the people who naturally will play devil's advocate, just, you know, it's how their character is, but to have someone dedicated in the meeting to almost poke holes in the plan and see, you know, where it doesn't hold water, I think it's a really interesting idea. And as you mentioned, I mean, change isn't going away. It's not this finite moment in time that we are working towards or moving towards, but it's happening every day and the pace of change is only increasing. And obviously, you know, across industries, this is going to look and feel different, but have you recognized any high level red flags that we can pinpoint within our organization or within our leadership style that indicate things need to change in our organization? You know, before I answer that, I kind of want to want to give an analogy, which you know talks about you know the impact and you know the size size of the the issue or the opportunity, if you will. You know, if we we take a look at the Fortune 500 list in 2010, and then compare it to uh, 2019, so 10 lists later, uh, you know, only four companies uh, remain on that list, and if we take a look at the market cap. Uh, lists, the number falls to three. So it's happening to very big companies who are household names that all of a sudden uh, go by uh, the wayside. But I, I, I think more precisely to answer your question, I think one of the things that's really important in organizations today are things like uh, intellectual curiosity, adaptability, flexibility, uh, and those are things that I think need to be entrenched in a, in a culture uh, of an organization in order to be successful. Uh, as you said, Samantha, the, the pace of change has increased rapidly. Uh, before, you didn't need people and cultures that were, were incredibly nimble or adaptable. Uh, to, to me, connecting ideas from one industry and bringing it to another creates a lot of in, innovation and as a result of that, keeps you ahead of uh, ahead of the competition. But it's right. all about changing quick. And I mean, so you mentioned culture, which is in a really important part, in my opinion, in 
not only enacting change, but sustaining change. And I think for the organizations that are getting started, are still in the startup phase, they're in a good era to really understand the pace of change and understand how quickly they need to move to not only stay relevant, but stay ahead of the curve. But we have these legacy brands and organizations that have existed for some time that are really struggling to make their way into kind of the modern age. You know, when it comes to getting their employees excited, when it comes to working that mindset of change into the culture, it's a significant shift. And how do you suppose leaders can go about getting their teams excited, anticipating, wanting things to change so that they feel they're contributing to it from the beginning? Well, I think you're bringing up a, a great, uh, a great question. I, you know, I think uh, I, I'd like to consider myself a student of organizational change, and I think in any change management uh, program uh, or process, rather, if you're trying to really entrench things into a into a culture, the number one step is what is the case for change? If you can't get an organization to understand why the status quo is no good and why the stat and the case for change that's being presented is is important, forget the rest. You'll never be able to go to step two, three, and four. Mm-hmm. So really it's all about the case for change, why the status quo isn't acceptable. And to me, things that really drive and make a difference in successful companies today is really having a clear understanding of what the purpose of the organization is. And, you know, purpose-driven companies today are are the ones that become incredibly uh, important and, you know, very different, let's say, from a from a, a vision statement that people put on the walls like uh, like wallpaper. It's really something that all of the employees in an organization really feel and that when they come to work every day, uh, really understand why they're there and what the purpose of the organization is. Yeah, I've definitely seen that myself in organizations that paint the purpose that's so misaligned with their company values and the culture that is not necessarily what you find on the posters, but but the real culture, <laughs> the culture that's felt of the people going, you know, going in, uh, you know, day in, day out. And let's take a step back to step number one and really identifying the need for change. Do you think that identifying what that is is still coming from the top down, or do you think there's really more of a bottom up approach to identifying what needs to change and why? Well, you know, hopefully you have a collaborative organization where ideas and are, are coming from all parts of the organization, irrespective of hierarchy. You know, have, having said that, change needs to be driven, in my mind, uh, from, from the top. Uh, you know, I've seen too many times I've been involved in, in change leadership uh, uh, training, training, if you will, where I've seen a, a group of a management team attend some amazing uh, leadership uh, development uh, processes, and their their president or CEO is not there. Mm-hmm. So you have people who are all worked up, who are speaking now a, a new language, and go back uh, back to the ranch uh, as it was, and uh, and the CEO or president has no idea what they're talking about, and those those type of processes fail. So it, it really needs to, uh, to be led, uh, led and felt by the, by the top, in my opinion. 
So, I mean, let's talk about leadership for a minute because there are some leaders when it comes to change, particularly they'll be tempted to cut corners, whether that's to reach a deadline or to hit a milestone and can have a tendency to settle on good enough, but good enough simply doesn't cut it for you. And it shouldn't cut it for those looking to make significant changes within their organizations. Why do you think that that's a mindset that's unproductive and inconducive to success? You know, again, it's rooted in that inertia of the status quo. It's, you know, maybe, you know, people who don't understand how to get uh, to the next step or think that the status quo is is great and fine and they're they're doing well, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, the, pro- the problem is uh, the guys in the next boardroom are thinking about something else. Uh, you, know, you know, it used to be kind of we were going from version 1.27 of a product, a process, a company uh, to version 1.28. Uh, today, it's really version 1.27 moving to version 7.0. So we, we really need to make some of these step changes in order to keep ahead of, uh, ahead of the pack. Uh, complacency means, uh, means death. Uh, you know, the, there was a, an old adage, I think I had this on my, my desk at one point, if, if you're through changing, you're through. Mm. And I think it never, you know, t- today that really holds true. You got to continue to change. You got, you know, and sometimes it means two step forward, one step backwards, or even sideways, but you need to keep changing. I think a big part of what makes a change successful, particularly within an organization, is the feedback loop, is having that constant feedback, as you mentioned, you know, across silos, across different parts of the organization to break some of those silos down and make sure people are working hand in glove. How do you think through, especially organization-wide change, we can really make feedback an integral part of our day-to-day? You, you, you mentioned some great elements of uh, feedback, and I think it's incredibly important within an organization uh, that you have vehicles and, and, and a way to uh, get ideas really free-flowing uh, through, through an organization, really don't have walls and barriers or, or hierarchy in a way that it prevents uh, an exchange of ideas. Uh, having said that, to me, one of the most important areas of feedback is from your customers. Mm. Uh, customers and external uh, stakeholders, and maybe your your communities, et cetera. But clearly, you know, again, I think one of the hallmarks of a really successful company is one that has ongoing communication with its customers and ongoing feedback from its customers so the, that the customer experience uh, can be unparalleled. It's interesting you mentioned that. I've worked for a couple organizations where internally the feedback was quite strong and we gave ourselves a pat on the back because as we were preparing for a product launch, we really felt that we've dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. And then with the grand reveal, we realized this doesn't actually serve (laughs) the customer's needs. No one asked for this. We had our, our feedback loop pretty solid inside, but no one was checking in with the customers to see is this actually solving a pain point that they're feeling. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to mention names, but you know, I'm thinking of a, a large utility that I've had crazy poor experiences with. 
you know, and it really crossed my mind as I'm waiting on, on the line for an hour or getting crazy answers or getting bounced from one to the other. And I, I said, if, if the CEO of this company could just what I call staple himself uh, to the order and experience what a customer experiences, I'm sure that there would be changes uh, coming to, to the organization. So, you know, it's really understanding what those critical moments of truth are with uh, with the customers to create a, a great customer experience. So you need to get and listen to the feedback from your customers. I've seen too many companies that are soliciting uh, input and feedback from customers, which is great, but when they get it, they do nothing, nothing with it. Yeah, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Jay Bear. He's pretty big in the customer experience space and one of the things he mentioned at a conference I attended that has really stuck with me is no response is a response. And if you're asking for feedback and you're getting it and you're not responding, it sends a strong signal that that feedback just doesn't matter. Well, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. I mean, it's worse to have heightened expectations that you're asking for feedback. So as a, as a consumer, you're thinking, okay, great. They're asking for my feedback. I'm taking the time to give it. So they're going to do something with it. And uh, if if they don't, if the company doesn't, it it creates uh, more of a letdown than if uh, they didn't solicit feedback in the first place. So I couldn't agree more. And and the same goes internally, right? If we're opening the floor, we're opening our our office door or virtual Zoom door (laughs) these days, and we're asking our employees, our peers, our even our you know direct managers for feedback, and that feedback comes, I mean, it comes with the expectation that it's going to be listened to, that it's going to be, um, you know, actionable. And which is not to say that every bit of feedback that's given, you need to listen and implement. Obviously, there's a, a layer of judgment that's required. But just to say that internally, we have to set those expectations as well, that if we're asking for input, if we're asking for feedback, then there's a there's an expectation that there is going to be something that is done with that feedback. And if it is rejected for some reason, if it doesn't align with the the mission or the product that's being developed, then to communicate, and again, it comes back to to, to, um, open communication and making sure that feedback is a two-way street, is that people know that if it was disregarded, that there was a reason and it's not because it was just ignored. No, I totally agree, Samantha. About a couple of weeks ago, I was speaking with someone who's part of a company that was doing, uh, had done an annual customer survey, and it was uh, two or three months later, and the employees didn't hear anything about it. So, you know, once you do something like that, you create expectations, and if you don't sit down and give the feedback to the employees and say, this is what we heard from you, these are the actions we're taking and have a, a follow-up and, and saying, okay, we said we were going to do this, we're doing this. Uh, you know, it's a total waste of time if, if you don't follow through. And I think it's one of the surest ways to lose momentum. I mean, if you've built the buy-in and you've got people excited from the beginning and they feel like they have the ability to contribute to something significant and impactful for the organization and then you know, you will hear crickets, then there goes the excitement, there goes the effort built to get them on board. Yeah, I think you're right. And conversely, if you really follow through and do it and say, we, we heard what you said, this is how we're reacting to it. We're following through, we're going to have a monthly uh, update for you and keep you, you know, you create a momentum 
that's incredibly powerful and you you make people uh, understand that they are an important part of the organization they are being listened to and uh, you know that's the the surefire way to get ideas uh, if you don't give the feedback uh, as as you're saying you're going to start hearing crickets right So we've talked about the logistics of change a little bit, but on the flip side, change requires us to dream, like to dream big, to dream of possibilities, of alternatives and solutions. And you're somewhat of a dreamer yourself. So I'd love to know what is a change that you've dreamt up and have brought to life that you're most proud of? Wow, that's a, that's a good, uh, that's a good question. You know, I, I think one of the, one of the things I'm most proud of uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about uh, culture, you know, in organizations that I've led, you know, people have heard me say ad nauseum that the difference between winning and, and losing is culture and people. And I really believe strongly in that. And it's always been a focus of mine in, in organizations that I've been a part of or have led. Uh, so probably the things that I'm most proud of are are sweeping cultural changes in an organization, you know, organizations moving uh, from very inwardly focused organizations to outwardly focused organizations who have then become uh, leaders in the industry. That's, that's probably the thing uh, that I'm most proud of, uh, you know, in conjunction with, with people who've been part of those teams going on to be uh, major players in, in significant organizations. That's incredible. Thank you for sharing. For those listening who are about to embark or wish to enact cultural change within their organization, but are not quite sure where to begin, what is one thing they can do today to get the ball rolling in the right direction? I think one of the things is really understanding at the beginning, what is the state of the nation? Uh, to understand and solicit as much feedback as you can from all stakeholders. Don't take an inwardly focused, although, you know, obviously getting the pulse of the organization from the inside is is really important. Uh, but getting it from outside is is incredibly important. And I would also say if you're doing that, do it with a, a, a personal touch. You know, I remember uh, working in conjunction with a, a major customer and doing face-to-face interviews with all of their key stakeholders with them as opposed to sending out a survey or something like that. So understand the state of the nation, not necessarily how you view it, because the way you view it may be very different from how others view it and and what the reality is. So first of all, kind of get a fact base uh, together of the state of the nation and and then craft, you know, what what is the case for change? and really make it compelling and and test that and validate that so you know that you're going to get people on the train with you. Because if you can't get those people to understand the case for change, as I mentioned before, uh, you're going to go nowhere. But I would also say, you know, jump in. Uh, It's not a linear venture. It could be, like I said before, two steps forward, one steps backwards. Uh, But doing something is better than, than doing nothing. Wonderful. Michael, you've given us so much to think about, so much to take action on today. Where can people follow you to learn more about your journey and the incredible information that you share quite regularly about change and how to walk that path? 
Yeah, probably the best place is just on LinkedIn where I'll write articles, do postings, et cetera. Uh, I'm easy to get in uh, in contact with and my contact information is uh, is on my LinkedIn page. Wonderful. I will be sure to link to his LinkedIn page in the show notes, listeners. Michael, thank you for being here with us today. It's been such a pleasure having you on. Samantha, it's been great to be with you. Thank you. Friends, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Catalyst with Samantha Chris. If you like what you heard, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I hope you're feeling a little more equipped to lean into the unknown and take inspired action.